My name is Ethan Magnus, one of the pastors here. Boy, we are so glad you're here as we continue our series, Hope for Everyone. Uh, before I jump into it, a couple things. One, uh, please, let's keep praying for uh, Mike M. Bowden, uh, one of our worship pastors. Uh, he's gone again this week down in Nashville taking care of his son, Caleb. Uh, Caleb is on the mend and home from the hospital and doing better every day. We're praising God for that. Uh, but I know uh, that Mike and Susan are looking forward to when they can be back here. And Mike, of course, will, uh, we hope will be back next week with us, worshiping with us. But stay in prayer uh, for Mike and Susan and uh, their son, Caleb. Also, um, you heard in the announcement video about First Things First, our uh, lunch for those who maybe are new around here or trying to figure out how to get plugged in and connected and learn a little bit more about uh, First Christian Church. Uh, that is today, and uh, we do have a little bit of extra food, so just come. If you want to come, just show up. We can handle uh, a few more people, so we'd love to have you join us for First Things First. We've got child care provided for that. It meets after our third service, uh, our third hour, rather, and um, so it's like 12.30 or something right below this, kind of go straight down from this room, down the stairs, and kind of back this way is where we'll meet there. So we'd love to see you at First Things First. All right, so we're talking about hope. And what we discovered last week is that if we're going to talk clearly about hope, uh, we've also got to talk a little bit about despair. I mean, if, if we're going to talk about hope and how God can accomplish hope in our lives, uh, we've got to talk about where our bones are dry. Ezekiel, taken by God to see the dry bones, and we've got to talk about where are the dry bones in our life, where are those places where the rattling relics of death are with us, because it's in those areas where the bones are dry, where we are most prone to despair, and where we are most in need of hope. I mean, you know, it might be in your marriage, or in your family, or in your career, or in your health, or somewhere, you know. Next week, we're going to talk about hope for friendships, because I know a lot of us, the, the place where our bones are dry is that we are lonely, and we lack the relationships to sustain us through the challenges of life, and so we're going to talk about some hope in that area next week. But today, we're going to talk about failure, and the places where our lives get stuck. Because what I've observed is that this is one of those places where we are so quick to lose hope. I mean, almost what it means to be stuck is that you think there's no hope you'll ever get out. Or what it means to fail is that you recognize that what you hoped for didn't happen and hope can evaporate quickly. Maybe you tried out for the team and you didn't make it. Or you studied for the test and you still failed it. Or you applied for the job and somebody else got it. Or you worked for a promotion and it wasn't given to you, or you had a dream uh, for retirement that you were going to travel and play golf, but the money wasn't there, or your health wasn't there, and your friends are all traveling, and they're all playing golf, but you're stuck, kind of home alone, kind of watching them, you know. I know a guy, um, he was a, on, on fire for ministry. He's a local church pastor, it was a second career for him. He'd had another job, but transitioned to ministry after he was, came to faith as an adult. Uh, he took his first ministry job. He was so zealous, and he was so skilled, and it was a disaster. He was part of a vibrant, growing church, but he, just, he, he basically made things so hard on them. The leaders of the church came to him and said, you're ruining the reputation of our church. You've got to go. And so he left. 
He took another job at another church, bigger city, bigger church. They had some good, strong leaders. Maybe he could succeed there. He was on fire, but again, immediately he's causing trouble. So the leaders of the church had another meeting. They told him he had to leave town. That night, in the middle of the night, they said, you got to get out of town before anybody notices, before you can cause more trouble. They sent him home to live with his parents, hoped he wouldn't do much damage in his hometown. He'd failed, and he was stuck in a city he'd never really wanted to go back to. And failure steals our hope. I'm not sure much in life robs us of hope like a track record of failure or like a season of being stuck, you know. Because I think most of us at this point in our lives, we have all the proof we need to know we're pretty good at failing. And all the evidence required to know that we can get stuck and stay stuck. In fact, a lot of us have an area of our life that might just be stuck, you know. We've got, we got an area of our life that hadn't been, gotten any better in 10 years. We don't see how it's going to get any better. Or maybe you remember just a little bit of high school physics, not a lot of high school physics, but just a, a little bit to remember Newton's first law of failure, right? An object that is failing tends to keep failing. And an object that is stuck tends to stay stuck. And, and when we failed, or when we're stuck, a lot of us react in, in foolish ways. Uh, I do this, maybe you do. A lot of us react to failure with denial, right? We say it's fine, we're fine, everything's fine, it's not that big a deal. I, I didn't really want that job, I didn't really want that opportunity, I wasn't really trying for it anyway, it's, it's fine, it's fine, no big deal, it's fine. Or we try cliches, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you strong. I remember very clearly the first time I'd been trying to do something and I'd failed at it and somebody said to me, Ethan, don't worry about it, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And my first thought was, what doesn't kill me? I didn't know that was on the table. I, this could kill me? Like, that's one of the possibilities here? I was just doing a thing, and you're telling me I might die from this? That wasn't what they meant, but I was a little confused by it. I was like, what do you mean what doesn't kill me makes me stronger? But, but the thing is, the denial that we're stuck doesn't actually help you get unstuck. And the cliches don't offer any real hope. But when we do that, we're not alone. It's what they did in Babylon, too. Uh, we talked about Babylon last Sunday, uh, the kingdom of Judah, God's people. It's destroyed by the Babylonian armies. Many are killed, many are scattered, but thousands are carried across the desert into exile. They had failed in honoring God and were punished for it, and they were stuck in exile. And some of them tried denial. Uh, in fact, not long after the Babylonian armies walked across the desert with all those kidnapped victims, uh, the few people who remained in Jerusalem, they found a second cousin twice removed of the Davidic line, and they started calling him king, and they put him in charge, and they started acting like everything's fine. We got the kingdom back. We're fine. Don't look at the walls or the fact that the temple is still on fire because it's fine. We got it all fixed. We got it. The kingdom of Judah is back and intact. Over in exile, they tried cliches, false prophets arose in Babylon to say, this will not last our God will not let us, we're the people of God, he would never let us stay in exile. We'll be back in Jerusalem by the spring. We'll be back by next year. Everybody just wait, stay in your tents, don't settle down. We'll, this is going to be over super quickly. God would never let this happen to us. God looks out for those, you know, who are his. And in the midst of this denial, and these cliches offering false hope, 
The prophet Jeremiah wrote a letter to those in exile and to the leaders in Jerusalem to set the record straight. Jeremiah 29 uh, records this letter that Jeremiah wrote. And, and it's a curious letter. It's mostly bad news. And then there in the middle, some really, really good news. And they needed to hear both. If you've got your Bible with me, open it up to Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll read a few verses here. Uh, or you can follow along on the screen. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, had sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams that you keep encouraging them to have. They are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You may say, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. That's the ones who were saying it'll be over quickly. Don't worry. God would never let this happen to us. But this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne. That's the one who pretended like they'd restored the kingdom of Judah, even though most of the people were still kidnapped. And all the people who remain in this city, your fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them. I will make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and plagues, and will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and an object of horror, of scorn and reproach among the nations where I drive them, for they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord. Words that I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets, and you exiles have not listened either. And in case you're curious, Jeremiah's prophecy does come true here. Uh, those who stayed in the land with their pretend kingdom, they eventually decided to rebel against Babylon. And predictably, uh, they didn't have to send a whole army. They sent a little part of the army and wiped out the city again and drove the people uh, fleeing into Egypt. There's a great irony 
whenever you preach on Jeremiah chapter 29. Because for many of us, the one verse from this whole chapter that we've heard before is Jeremiah 29, 11. The one where it says, for I know the plans I have for you, uh, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And if you know that one verse, you probably know it because you saw it cross-stitched on a pillow or perhaps as the text on the bottom of a motivational poster in your grandmother's house or something like that. I mean, if you know that verse, that's kind of how you know it. And the irony of that is, is it leads many of us to think that Jeremiah 29 must like be the happiest chapter in the Bible. But it's not. It's like a really, really sad chapter. And I promise you, nobody, nobody who got this letter was like, we should cross-stitch that on a pillow. Because that's, no, because they weren't paying attention to Jeremiah 29, 11. They were paying attention to Jeremiah 29, 10, the one that said, after 70 years, I'll come and fulfill my good promise. Because everybody reading this letter is going to be dead in 70 years. So nobody who read this letter thought, like, yay. Like, no, like that wasn't their, that wasn't their reaction. In, and in fact, actually, it turns out that the bad news of Jeremiah 29, and it is mostly bad news, is the first thing Jeremiah wants us to learn about how to find hope. How do you find hope in the midst of failure? How do you find hope when you are stuck? And the first, thing, the first lesson he's got for us is don't pretend that everything is fine. Don't pretend that everything is fine. The fools in Jerusalem were pretending everything was fine. And the liars in Babylon were pretending everything was fine. Jeremiah says, stop pretending everything is fine. It's bad. Like, that's what things are. And the thing is, here's the reason we need this message is we're prone to do the same thing in our churches and in our communities and with our friends. Everyone's fine. I'm fine. You're fine. We're all fine. And everything's great. And our kids are great. And our career is great. And our house is great. I mean, until there's a crisis and you can't hide it anymore, maybe then you call for help. I I think some people even think that if they pretend like everything is fine, that following Christ is always daisies and butterflies, that that'll somehow improve their witness to a watching world. But it doesn't. Because they know we're lying about that. And, of course, it isn't even what Christ promised. And when, if we think we're helping by never being honest about how we fall back into sin or never being honest about how we get stuck in life or never being honest that we get sick, too, and we're sad, too, well, we're not helping. Jeremiah says we're just making it worse. We hurt our witness, because everybody knows we're lying. We also hurt our communities. We hurt the community of the church. Because if, if you're busy pretending that everything's fine, and then somebody joins your small group or joins your Sunday school class, and their life is pretty messed up, they're going to be like, oh, I don't fit in here, because these people are all fine, and I'm like a wreck. Whereas you're a wreck, too. You're just faking it. This is why I love, uh, you know, we, they, we, there's a, in the video announcements, they're promoting some of our recovery groups. That's why I love recovery groups. That's some of my, I, I feel more at home there than just about anywhere in my life. 
Because everybody, from the moment you walk in the door, like, oh, man, I messed up. Oh, me too. Like, oh, we're going to get along great because we have that in common. I love that. The, the, the tendency we have to pretend like everything's fine, um, it robs us of real hope. I know a lot of people who have given up on the real hope that God offers because some church person one day along the way promised them a false hope. You know, if you'll just, you know, if you'll just love Jesus, you'll get the husband of your dreams. Or if you'll just love Jesus, you'll never suffer again. Or if you'll just love Jesus, you'll never sin again. And, and somebody gave them false hope, and false hope is false. That's why we call it false hope. And when false hope was proved false, they gave up on all hope. And Jeremiah says, no, no, the first step to real hope is to stop pretending that everything is fine. In fact, you read on in chapter 29, he's got some really harsh words from the people who are denying that there is a problem. Second thing he tells us to do, again, before he gets to the hope, we've got some stuff to do. Number one, don't pretend everything is fine. Number two, do the most good possible in the place where you are. Do the most good possible in the place where you are. I love this little section. You can look at it later in verses 5 through 7. He says, he says, get married, have kids, plant a garden, help the city, bless the town where you live. He's like, I know you didn't want to live here. You didn't plan to live here. You didn't, you're, you're stuck in Babylon, and none of you want to be stuck in Babylon. Still, do the most good possible. You see, what Jeremiah is trying to teach us is that our failure and our stuckness does not prevent us from doing the most good we can in the situation we're in. Listen, I get it. If you hadn't failed, you could do more good. And if you weren't stuck, you could, you could serve God even more. I get that. But what Jeremiah is just saying is, okay, so you did fail. So you are stuck. What's the most good? Maybe you could just ask yourself this question. If as I'm talking, you're, you're being a little, just a little bit honest about where you're stuck right now in life. Maybe it's a relationship or a career or it's finances or it's health or where you failed. Maybe it's some moral failing or some sin issue you just can't break. Okay, so you're stuck and you failed. Could you just ask God, from this place of failure, what's the most good I can do? Because that's what I want to do. I, I know I failed. Or I know I'm stuck. But I want to do the best possible choice from here. And stop pretending you're somewhere else. Stop beating yourself up that you're not better than you were, you know. Because here's what we do. Some of us have decided to give Satan two victories for the price of one. That's what we've decided to do. Like, like Satan already got the victory of you fell back into a sin pattern that you thought was behind you. Or, or you failed at some, something God has called you to do, and instead you did the other thing and you failed. Or, or you're stuck because of circumstances beyond your control. So Satan already got that victory, and so we decided to give Satan the two-for-one special, and because of yesterday's sin, we're not serving God today. Like, who am I to share the gospel? I'm such a sinner. Or who am I to offer the hope of Jesus Christ? Because my life isn't perfect either. And, 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 and Satan doesn't need both victories, okay? Because what Jeremiah is saying is that, that, so you're stuck. What's the most good you can do from this place? Are you stuck in the wrong job? Some of you are. You've been trying to get out for a long time and just can't get a break. All right. Well, do that job in a way that honors God for as long as you're stuck in it. Are you stuck in the wrong town, maybe? Well, live in that city in a way that honors God. Plant gardens. Seek the prosperity of the city where you are. Have you failed morally or relationally or professionally? Okay, 
So has almost everyone in this room. Oh, no, I'm looking around. Actually, it is everyone in this room. Yeah, we all have. Okay, so great. So you also, like us, have failed morally or relationally or professionally. Probably recently you've failed. So my question is this. From where you stand today, not super proud of yourself. I get it. But from where you stand today, what is the best, kindest, most generous and God-honoring thing you can do from this place where you stand? Jeremiah says, just do that. Don't pretend that you're not stuck, but then do the best thing you can. Here's his third lesson. Number one, don't pretend everything is fine. Number two, do the most possible good in the place where you are. And number three, trust in the plans of God and seek the presence of God. All right, this is where we start to turn the corner, and the bad news starts to get overwhelmed by the good news. Trust in the plans of God. Seek the presence of God. We're going to look back. Look back with me at verse 10. Verse 10 is a fascinating verse. It's the, it's the worst sentence and the best sentence in, in the whole chapter. We focus on verse 11, but the real action is in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon. Okay, that's the bad news. It's the worst news that they could imagine. It's what none of them wanted to hear. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. This is what you've got to pay attention to. We're going to read verse 11 again in a second. Verse 11 is awesome, but verse 10 is, is the amazing verse. It says, your failure is going to have huge consequences, God says. It does. Sin has consequences. But it will not stop the promise and intention of God. Like, that's it. That's the whole message. Your failure is going to have consequences. Sin still causes us pain. My sin causes me pain. My sin causes other people pain. But my sin will not stop the promises of God from coming true. For I know the plans, God says. I'm the one who has the plans. These were never your plans. You're not the one who planned to go live in a promised land. You're not the one who planned to establish a kingdom. You're not the one who planned to build a temple. You're I, those are all my plans. And don't you think for a second, God says, that I'm going to let your failure stop my plans. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. So come back to me, he says. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me. He just says, come back to me. Run back to me. This is what Jeremiah wants them to know. He wants them to know they've got to know the real bad news. They have failed and they are stuck. And no denial is going to make a difference this time. But he also wants to know them to know the even realer, even better news that our God can work good even out of the bad, that our God's plans and our God's promises are not stopped by our failure. This is what we saw in the Valley of the Dry Bones last week, that in the providence of God, no one's story ends when they're stuck, and no life ends in failure. God is not done redeeming. Ephesians promises this, and Colossians promises this, and Romans promises this, and Jesus promises this, that God is not done redeeming until everything has been redeemed, and this is why there is hope for everyone. The big message of Jeremiah 29 11, and the whole chapter it's in, is don't believe in false hope. False hope will just disappoint you. 
but you can believe in real hope that God is accomplishing God's plans for you even in the midst of the chaos and the destruction and the failure and the sin and the loss. I I wish I was good at cross-stitch because I do actually want a pillow with Jeremiah 29 11 cross-stitched on it. But I don't want the background to be like butterflies and unicorns and flowers and stuff. I want the background to be a, a burning city or a starving family or a, a, a war or just someone in tears. Because the promise of Jeremiah 29 11 is not the promise that is good when it's all butterflies, roses, and unicorns. It's the promise that is good for when our lives are in chaos, for when we are stuck in exile, for when we are paying the price of our failure. That's when Jeremiah 29, 11 matters. I know the plans, declares the Lord. See, here's the thing. Some of y'all paid attention in physics class pretty well, but I wish you'd paid just a little bit more attention. Because Newton's first law of failure, as we said, it starts like this. An object that is failing tends to keep failing. And I know there's not much hope in that one. And then the next one is, an object that is stuck tends to stay stuck. And there's not much hope there. But does anybody remember the third sentence of Newton's first law of failure? Unless it is acted upon by an outside force. That's the full law, and that is the reality of our lives too. So what Jeremiah says is, when you have failed, when you are stuck, run back to God. That is the only outside force sufficient to unstuck your stuckness and unfail your failure. The last of Jeremiah's steps is this. Number one, don't pretend everything is fine. Number two, do the most good possible in the place where you are. Number three, trust in the plans of God. Seek the presence of God. And number four is this. Though in the world there is trouble, God will give us a hope and a future. The promise of God is not that God's plans will be fulfilled and you will never suffer and you will never struggle. The promise of God is that God's plans will be fulfilled even though we suffer and even though we struggle and even though we grieve. And the Bible is full of people who figure this out. Joseph was stuck in a prison. So what did he do? He sought the prosperity of the prison. He did the most good he could there in his jail cell. He clung to the person of God until it was time for God to enact God's hope and God's future. Uh, Moses was a failure in Egypt, so he was stuck in Midian. So what did he do? He did the most good he could while he was there until an outside force interrupted his life, and all of a sudden he was part of God's plan for a hope and a future. Hannah was stuck without a child or a heritage, so what did she do? She did the most good she could in the place where she was. It wasn't the place she wanted to be. It wasn't the accomplishment she hoped to have. She just did the most good she could in the place where she was. She clung to God, and God opened up a hope and a future. One of the best examples of this I know is the Apostle Paul. He's that preacher I was talking about earlier. Remember the one who came to Christ as an adult, had two disastrously failed ministries, and he did. Paul's first two ministries were absolute disasters. I'm just telling you, you've got to be bad at this to have to get run out of town at night by two churches in a row. Like that's when you know you're bad at being a preacher. He winds up in Tarsus, stuck, until an outside force. It was the providence of God, but in this time it was in the person of a guy named Barnabas. 
he was working in Antioch, and he thought just what we need is that rabble-rouser Paul. So he goes to Tarsus, and he gets him. And I will say, for a lot of us, the way the outside force of God is going to operate in our lives to get us unstuck and help us move out of our failure, it is going to be another person, okay? That's why you need to talk about it, whether it's in your small group or go to a recovery group. It's also why we do this thing called Barnabas Week. You heard about it in the video. These cards are somewhere in your pews, maybe in the back. Maybe you could grab one right now. And it's just a little postcard. And the challenge is just, could you write a note to somebody this week to encourage them? And maybe you'll particularly think of somebody that might be just a little bit stuck. And maybe you could be the outside force. It just kind of bumps them back in the direction of hope. and kind of reminds them that, that God wants to accomplish something. That God hasn't given up on God's promises, even if maybe they have. So this guy, Paul, twice a failure. In fact, when Barnabas went to get him, the only thing Paul had ever done pretty well was kill Christians. He was really good at that. Uh, but the ministry thing was a disaster. Barnabas goes and gets him. And all of a sudden, God had a plan for a hope and a future. and His ministry exploded. He became the most effective missionary the church has ever seen. And, and, and he ended up writing a bunch of letters to some of the churches that he planted. And all of them are just filled with a message of hope for people who are stuck and for people who have failed. I want to wrap up with just a little bit of one of his letters. This is a letter he wrote to the church in Rome. It's in the 8th chapter. If you want to follow along, you can. In the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, verse 18. Here's what this failure of a preacher learned about hope. I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that's going to be revealed to us. The whole creation waits, breathless with anticipation, for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation was subjected to frustration. Some of you are like, can I get an amen? I know exactly what that's talking about. My, my life's been subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who subjected it. But in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. We know that the whole creation is groaning 